Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. One of the more interesting books in the Bible is just a real little short one called Philemon. It's intriguing because Paul writes a letter about a personal problem to a Christian that you don't read anything about anywhere else in the Bible. Now, he'll mention a few individuals by name, and some of them you've heard of, some of them you haven't. For example, you know, Paul, Timothy, Mark, Luke, those are kind of familiar names in the New Testament. But then there are other names like Philemon, Aphia, probably his wife, Archippus, maybe their son, some think maybe the pastor of the house church that met in their home, and then Epaphras, Aristarchus, and Demas. That personal problem, I believe, is a personal issue because these 10 names, these 10 individuals, are also only showing up in one other place, and that's in the book of Colossians. And so the indication kind of is that they were there with the larger church in Colossae, but not only does Paul write a a letter called Colossians to that group, but then he also includes this small note to be delivered by a guy named Onesimus to Philemon in that larger church addressing a specific personal issue instead of the whole church as well. Now, the fun and games begins because that personal issue involves a person named Onesimus. And this is where it gets real exciting. Onesimus is a runaway slave, but not just any runaway slave. He is the runaway slave of Philemon, the man in whom hosts the church in his own home there in Colossae. I know the initial reaction is pretty negative, right? A Christian owning a slave, and we just get really negative about that. You know, images of Harriet Tubman and Uncle Tom's cabin come to mind, roots with Kunta Kinte, all of that comes to mind, especially in this current setting now where anything relating to the South and a reminder of the antebellum slave culture just has to be brought down. It has to be torn away and ripped out of the pages of history. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying that that seems to be the way that things want to be handled now. We just want to pretend like it didn't exist, but it did exist. Now, before condemning this Christian brother, Philemon, just remember the culture of his time, not our time, but of his time. Their society had not yet evolved to the point of understanding that slavery is wrong. And it was so prevalent in their cities that it was entirely common for there to be more slaves in any particular city than there were free citizens. Now, of course, today we've come to understand and believe that slavery is wrong and needs to be abolished. But do you know why we believe that to be true? The premise that all men are created equal, that premise actually begins with this book, Philemon. And that personal letter about a personal problem with a person, Onesimus. 
Let me give you a little backstory. Onesimus runs away from Philemon. He makes his way to freedom. He does the smart thing that any runaway would do. He tries to figure out where he can hide and blend in. And so he does that by going to the city. Now, some say Rome, some say Ephesus. It doesn't really matter. Ephesus is probably the one that I would think it would be. But that was because it was a seaport city. Either way, though, there's over a quarter of a million slaves. So it would be easy enough to find other slaves, other runaways who could protect him in the crowd, or he could make it on board a ship as you know, a slave or an indentured servant there and make his way to freedom in another part of the world. And yet somehow Onesimus, that runaway slave, ends up being caught and put in prison with a cellmate named Paul. So Paul does what Paul does. He shares the story of the gospel with him. He shares the story of grace and forgiveness and peace instead of constantly being on a run and fearful and overwhelmed by what might happen and how all that can be his because of Christ within. Well, that's great news. Christ has set you free. But now what? Now how do I live? And this is where Paul begins to make sure that faith becomes personal and gets put into action in his own real life in regard to integrity and character. No doubt it probably was stunning to Onesimus that Paul would suggest what he now suggests. He tells him the runaway slave who's a born-again believer in Christ, you need to go back home to Philemon. The consequences for that kind of a choice? It would start with a brutal public beating, followed up in all likelihood by some kind of physical maiming to intimidate others from running away like he did. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't look forward to that. I'm looking at freedom where I am as opposed to public beating, shaming, and possibly physically being maimed for the rest of my life. Just can I be integrity? Can I be full of integrity? Can I have character and just stay here where I am? Start my life new, right? Talk about a mixed mixed message and, and emotions for Onesimus. He's finally free. He's finally forgiven. No doubt he was looking at Paul and saying, I thought you were my friend. Paul reassures him that he'll do everything he can to protect him. And so he writes this personal letter to his former master, Philemon. Let me pick up with the story. In Philemon, there's only one chapter, but I'll still say chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Remember, this is a shame-honor culture. And so Paul offers him some varieties and options on how he can save face by saying what he does. In verse 8, he says, In Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what's right. But because I love you, I'm pleading with you instead. You see how he, he could exert his apostolic authority, but because he's such a good friend with Philemon, he wants to preserve Philemon's dignity by asking him to do him a favor instead of commanding him and ordering him to do that. He says, I, Paul, I, I'm an old man now and also a prisoner for Christ Jesus. You know, we hear old man and we think out of touch, out of date. But when they in that culture heard old man, they thought respected elder. 
And he reminds Philemon that on top of the respect due him because of his age, he's also where he is, a prisoner for Christ. So it's just a way of reminding Philemon, I'm not asking you to do more than I'm asking what it's costing me. And he says, I'm pleading with you for my son, my child, Onesimus, who became my child while I was in prison. Now, Onesimus was a common name for slave it, and servants. It just meant useful. And Paul reminds him that he may only be a slave to you, but he's like a son to me. In the past, he says, verse 11, when he was useless to you, he has now become useful to me, both for you and for me. He's actually living up to his name, and his life has meaning now in a way that it didn't before. In verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back to you, and with him, I'm sending my own heart. Now, he's not talking about heart as in what's beating in your chest, no doubt <laughs> fluttering if you're Philemon reading this. But they had an interesting way of describing this. He says it's, it, it's a word that actually meant their bowels, or maybe it makes more sense to us to describe, he says, I'm sending him back to you, but I've got a real pit in my stomach. I wanted to keep him with me so that in your place he might help me while, I'm in, while I was in prison for the good news. He was here when you weren't, Paul tells him. Onesimus has done for me what I know that you would have done if you were here, but you weren't, so he filled in on your behalf. In verse 14, I didn't want to do anything without first asking you, so that any good that you do for me will be done because you want to and not because I forced you to. Once again, allowing Philemon the opportunity to save face. Maybe Onesimus was separated from you for a short time so that you could have him back forever. Paul, in saying this, reminds Philemon that his treatment of this runaway slave, Onesimus, has eternal consequences. And so rather than just grab a hold of him when you see him and, and have him publicly flogged and, and physically maimed to teach him a lesson, he reminds him that Onesimus may serve a greater, more eternal consequence or purpose. That may help him put aside the current dilemma that he's facing in favor of an eternal perspective that would change his opinion. In verse 16, he says, I'm sending him back to you no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a beloved brother. I love him so very much, but you'll love him even more, both as a person and also as a believer in the Lord. Verse 16 is the key verse to why the entire Western world would change how they looked at slaves several hundred years later. Previously, they saw slaves as only a piece of property when they looked at them, much like a chair or a home or a, a herd of cattle they only saw them as belongings. And now, because of Jesus Christ, Paul is asking him to look at 
Onesimus, not as a piece of property that he owns, but to actually see him as a person. And in that one thought, Paul attacks and undermines the entire foundation of racism by humanizing the slave. Philemon, you have to treat him as a brother in Christ, not just a piece of property. Well, why didn't Paul just tell him, slavery was wrong, you need to do away with slavery anyway? Well, like the antebellum South, their entire socioeconomic system revolved around slavery. So much so that the slave owners enjoyed a specific status or hierarchy, and they would have just written him off. Instead, Paul goes after the very foundation by humanizing him, reminding him he's not just property, he's a person. And once you accept them as your brother, once you accept them as your sister, you can't just use them and abuse them and mistreat them like any other animal that displeases you. In this letter, Paul destroys that systematic racism that was so prevalent in their culture with this one thought. Your life has to match your faith. In this letter, he mentions himself twice. Philemon and Onesimus by name only one time. But he mentions Jesus Christ by name eight different times. If we as God's church are ever going to confront the evils of our day, much like Paul was encouraging Philemon to confront the evil of slavery in his day. It's only going to happen when our faith in Jesus Christ and his grace becomes personal, a part of our personal everyday life, and not just something mental that, or theoretical that we believe or a thought that we assert to, a truth or a principle. No, it has to become a lifestyle. And there is no authority other than Jesus Christ who can convince me, who can compel me to surrender my rights for your rights. And pick up in verse 17. And so he says, if you consider me your partner, and by that he means business partner, in the business of sharing the gospel, in the business of the message of God spreading throughout the entire world. If we are in this business of spreading the gospel together, then I need you to welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. <laughs> welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. But you don't understand what he's cost me, Paul. That's why in verse 18 he says, if he's done anything to wrong you or if he owes you anything, then charge that to me. Now at that time, let me just put it in these terms, the value of a healthy slave was approximately a half a year's salary. Should I remind you here that Paul is writing from prison? Where's he going to come up with a half a year's salary? In all likelihood, Onesimus, when he ran away from Philemon, probably stole some things so that he could finance his escape. 
But Paul's in prison. How's he going to repay him? And yet in verse 19, Paul says, look, I, Paul, am writing this to you in my own hand. I will pay it back. It's his own personal IOU. But I'll say nothing about what you owe me for your own life. Paul's message had also made a difference eternally in Philemon's life. He had saved his soul too, not just Onesimus the slave, but Philemon the owner of the slave. Both of them were indebted to Paul. In verse 20, he says, So, my brother, I ask that you do this for me in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I write this letter knowing that you'll do what I ask you and even more. The even more can only mean one thing, that he give him his freedom. Paul's asking the runaway slave, Onesimus, to trust him and go back at great personal risk of being beaten, shamed, and maimed, maybe even killed, just to make a point to the other slaves not to do the same. But at the same time, he's asking Philemon to forgive him at great risk to his own standing in his own country club of other slave owners, you might say. And that would be at great risk to him because once the word gets out, that Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus, has come back to him, and he didn't punish the slave for running away, but actually gave him his freedom? Do you know what kind of rebellion that would start? I mean, it's got Spartacus written all over it. And that's a legitimate concern, since again, there were more slaves in the city than there were owners. They have to be controlled. Once you lose control, I know this is going to sound familiar, but the city would be overcome by riots and looting and vandalism and chaos in the streets. And if word got out that Philemon was the one who was responsible for that, he could end up losing everything. You see, the price for forgiveness is huge for everyone at risk. Well, he goes on in verse 22, and he says, One more thing, Philemon. I want you to prepare a room for me. I'm going to come and stay because I hope God will answer your prayers and I'll be able to come to you. Talk about accountability. Philemon was not just going to be able to ignore Paul's letter or even send a misleading or deceptive letter back to him. Yep, all taken care of. Paul was coming to see with his own eyes if Philemon had followed through. And not just Paul. You talk about awkward. Paul sends this letter to Philemon by personal carrier the runaway slave, Onesimus. And he gives instructions that this letter is to be read in front of everyone. The church that meets in his home. You talk about awkward. 
You talk about people getting uncomfortable and dropping their gaze and kind of shifting their weight around and, you know, kind of looking out of the side of their eye to see how Philemon's reacting to this. But more than that, he says, Epaphras, a prisoner with me for Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, and also Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, workers together with me, they send their greetings as well. Everybody knows. Everybody in that house church knows. Everybody in the region who has any relationship with these co-workers of Paul are watching and waiting to hear what Philemon is going to do. Is he going to insult Paul and expose himself as a words without deeds type of Christian? You see, it's put up or shut up time for Philemon when it comes to his faith, his integrity, and his credibility, not only within him and his own heart and his standing before God, but also with the entire church that meets in his own home. They're all aware of it. No wonder Paul realizes he's going to need all of the grace that God can give him, and that's what he prays for in verse 25. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul's strategy was truly, literally inspired. As a result of this letter, it would serve as the reason why over 1,700 years later, slaves would be set free. Because in reading their Bible, in reading this letter to Philemon in the pages of Scripture, they could not miss the obvious point. Slaves are not just property. You have to see them as people as well, brothers in Christ. And how can you mistreat and abuse a brother in Christ? But that only happens if Onesimus and Philemon both agree to give up their own rights for one another. Onesimus, I know you're right. Human rights are the right thing, and you have the right to be free. Paul's message to Philemon, I know that you're concerned about law and order, and you should be. It's right for you to want your rights. But in this instance, two rights can make a lot of wrong. Just like today, when people become so obsessed with demanding their rights that life usually goes wrong as well. You see, Christianity for them at that moment wasn't just hypothetical or theoretical. Christianity became real for their personal life. It was a huge risk for a runaway slave to ask him not to insist on his own right to be free. But it was also a huge risk for the owner of a runaway slave not to demand his own rights as an owner of a slave to reclaim his property. Being a Christian is more than what you believe. It's letting Jesus be Lord over your life choices. Now, it's one thing to talk about a long time ago and owning slaves. Well, that's the right choice, and everybody knows what the right choice is. Let me ask you this. Are you letting Jesus be the Lord over your life choices? 
Are you? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to convict your conscience and compel your decisions to make it work? Paul wasn't asking Onesimus and Philemon to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done for us. Remember the passage in Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7? Though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Notice that phrase. He gave up his divine privilege and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. We are never going to be more like Jesus than when we lay down our rights to what we deserve to make it possible for others to receive what they don't deserve. Grace. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. It's about being with Jesus on the right side of eternity. I can't tell you what's right and wrong, and I, I can't control what's going on in Columbus or Seattle or Portland or Chicago or Atlanta or New York or Washington, D.C. The only thing that I can control is this right here. What happens in my 60 inches? I can't control the past. I can't change the past. I can't manipulate the future. But I can do the right thing with the people today that are right here within my reach. That's a huge ask. But it all starts with prayer. Maybe you noticed I, I skipped over verse 4 through 7. It's there that he begins laying the premise that love has to be reality, not theory. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers. The you there is not to the church that meets in his home. The you is singular. So he says, Philemon, I thank God for you every time I pray. Paul knew that Philemon was a good man and would want to do the right thing, but this would really stretch him, just like it always stretches us when we have a choice between doing what we are inclined to do or what everybody else is doing or what we know internally is the right thing to do. But he says, I'm praying for you personally because I hear about the love that you have for all of God's holy people and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus you see, here's where Paul will remind Philemon of the very practical nature of faith. The only way to impact the people around us in our 60 inches is by living our faith versus just accepting something to be factually true or historically accurate. In verse 6, he says, I pray that the faith that you share may make you understand every blessing we have in Christ. Sharing your faith with others isn't just telling them your story of salvation. Sharing your faith with others indicates that you understand our blessing. You understand what it is to receive the blessing of God in spite of the fact that you were still a sinner when Christ died for you. You were guilty, but you've been declared innocent. You were enslaved to sin, but you were set free. 
sharing and living our faith blesses us by ensuring that humans are never treated like animals. In verse 7, he says, I have great joy and comfort, my brother, because the love you've shown to God's people has refreshed them. You see, like all of us, Philemon was a good man, but he had to make some big boy life decisions. He was being presented with the opportunity to prove, not just to himself, not just to Paul, but to everyone around him that he had influence with, he had the opportunity to prove that what he believed to be true about Jesus was what he was willing to put into practice in his own life, in his own 60 inches of influence, and give grace to the undeserving. To do that, he would have to make some Christ-like decisions. That would mean laying aside his own privileges and not clinging to his rights. It would mean swallowing his own pride and humbling himself in front of others in order to let others have a blessing that they didn't deserve. And that's your takeaway today. Pray to understand the difference that you can make within your 60 inches by giving people who don't deserve it the grace of respect, honor, and value because they're human, just like you, instead of treating them as disposables that are just pawns in a chess game. It is incredibly ironic to me that on a 4th of July weekend, when we usually celebrate freedom and independence, that we as a nation find ourselves surrounded by yet another war that we don't want to be a part of. A cultural, spiritual war between light and darkness, between God and greed, between freedom and control. There are those who would love nothing more than to overwhelm the unsuspecting and force them to conform to their standards of how we should live, how we should speak, what we should think in our everyday lives. In the name of tolerance, we're forced to deal with their intolerance. In the name of equality, we're forced to accept their unequal standards. In the name of justice, we're being forced to accept their lawlessness. In the noise of whose life matters more, we're shouted down if we suggest that all life is sacred. We're shamed for our privilege. And yet every spiritual blessing, we say, is available to whosoever will. Come to God. And as a result, many find themselves facing the strong temptation to respond with like kind, shout for shout, accusation for accusation, hate with hate, anger for anger, in the hope that they will finally be forced to acknowledge our rights as well. I can't imagine how hard it is to watch this happening especially for those of you who raised your right hand and solemnly swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, both foreign and domestic. But as Christians, we also have pledged our allegiance to God. 
And now we're confronted with the challenge of how to make sure our faith is reality and not just something that we say we believe. We must live our faith in such a way that treats others with human dignity and not just as disposables or riffraff who cause us discomfort and inconvenience us. That may require us, like Philemon, to surrender our right to be right in order to live and love like Jesus. Imagine if that's how we treated each other in marriage, surrendering our right to be right so that we could love our spouse like Jesus loved. Imagine if that's how we treated our family, surrendering our right to be right, and maybe even as parents, our right to punish our children for the greater right to treat them with dignity and allow them to be seen not just as our children, our possessions, but as people too. Imagine if that's how we treated the church, surrendering our right to be right, not demanding our own way, but instead serving. Even when it means not getting my way, but serving like Jesus served. You see, for our life to match our faith, it's got to be personal. And that's what Paul would write to the Colossians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Each time we pray for you, we're always begin, we always begin by giving thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard how much you trust the Lord and how much you love his people. So what do you do? <laughs> what do you know? It's the very same thing Jesus said about what's the most important commandment to please God. To love God and to love others as yourself. That's where it begins to get real in living our faith. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldorf Road, Marysville, Ohio 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.